May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. It's a pretty dramatic scene that we see played out in the Gospel text this evening. Comes sandwiched between two other key events. It follows Jesus' baptism, at which the words, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased, were pronounced. And then it's followed by his appearance in the synagogue in Galilee, in which he marked the beginning of his public ministry by reading from the prophet Isaiah and announcing, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In between those two events is this story of Jesus' 40-day fast in the wilderness. While Luke tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit, in Mark's telling, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That stronger language of being driven suggests to me that there was something non-negotiable about this wilderness time. That it wasn't as if Jesus was looking to book a room at a retreat center and do a little soul-searching, some personal professional development. No, God required Jesus to go out into that desert place 40 days with no food. Much as in the Hebrew Scriptures, God required both Moses and Elijah to observe 40-day wilderness fasts at hinge moments in their lives. This is where God needs Jesus to be. This is God's beloved, worn, weakened, and famished. This is God's Son, alone in the wilderness and facing down the temptation to take an easier path. As Teresa of Avila famously said, If this is how God treats his friends, no wonder he has so few of them. The tempter arrives, offering to Jesus that other path. In the popular imagination, the devil tends to be portrayed as being, well, clearly devilish. The very face of evil, in fact, with horns and a tail and a look in its eyes that leave no doubt as to its destructive and malicious intent. Yet, if we look at the nature of these three temptations, there's something terribly reasonable about them, which is why they are real temptations. To imagine a devilish figure, one who looks monstrous or so obviously demonic, is to risk missing the depths of Jesus' wrestling. There's actually another artistic tradition of showing the devil as an attractive young man. Titian's 16th century painting, The Temptation, is a very good example of that. It's going to go up on the website along with this sermon text in the next few days, so you can take a look at that portrayal. 
There's also a, a tradition as, uh, of presenting him as the most beautiful of angels. So not obviously ugly and evil and malicious, but rather strangely attractive. In the imagination of the contemporary illustrator Cy Smith, when the devil enters the scene, he looks like a very robust and healthy mere image of the weakened and hungry Jesus. And I think that that way of imagining the struggle strikes closer to the heart of why it's actually a real temptation. There are three of them, of course. The first, turn these stones into bread, thereby deal with that gnawing hunger 40 days. It's a temptation to serve himself and his own needs, very real and very basic, pressing human needs, in fact, regardless of any higher calling. The second temptation is to take hold of power. Just take it. Power over all the kingdoms of this world. There is a price. The price is to bow down to this ever so reasonable devil who claims to hold in his hands all of the glory and all of this authority to hand it over. The third temptation is what Scott Schaff calls a cross-avoiding spectacle. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, here's the devil quoting scripture, For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Prove. Prove that you are really God's son. Impress them all with this grand act. You have nothing to lose. You will be saved. And everything to gain. They'll bow down to you too. To each of these three temptations, these very reasonable, seductive temptations, Jesus responds simply by quoting Hebrew scripture. One does not live by bread alone. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's it. That's the whole of his response. Jesus refuses to engage in a debate with this adversary, perhaps to avoid dignifying the devil's way of being in the world. Maybe, though, it's because at this point Jesus is so vulnerable He's so tired, he's so weakened and so hungry that these temptations, they're so real, they're so reasonable that he knows that to debate is to risk losing. Best just to speak the words of his scriptural mother tongue. As we heard read aloud in this evening's lesson from the epistle to the Romans, The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here in that part of the epistle to the Romans, Paul is actually quoting from the very same Hebrew scriptural tradition as was Jesus. 
In this case, from Deuteronomy and from Joel. This ancient language is a language with which we can tell the truth. And by which we can locate ourselves differently. In defiance of the temptations to narrow self-fulfillment, self-centered power, and self-serving spectacle. It's a vocabulary that cuts across the grain of all of those things and invites us on a better, a truer, sometimes tougher, even cross-shaped path. According to N.T. Wright, the dictionary definition of the Greek word for sin is missing the mark. Sin, he writes, like a misfired arrow, drops short of the call to true humanness, to bearing and reflecting God's image. I think that's a very helpful image to keep in view as we consider this story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He wasn't wrestling with a temptation to do something bad in any moralistic sense but rather to trade his deeper calling for something else, something not real, something cheap. It's the same with us. And so Wright continues, The real answer to temptation is not, God will be cross if I do that, but if I do that, I will miss the best that my Father has for me. If I do that, I'll miss the mark. We will, in this sense, fall short like an arrow fired too weakly. We'll fall short of that intended mark, and that intended mark is to bear and reflect God's image deep within us. So sin, in that sense, and Jesus' resistance to his temptations, isn't about moralism. It's about failing to do and be what we were made to do and be. As Luke sets forth this story, he says, When the devil had finished every test, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Now that's quite a phrase, really, until an opportune time. It suggests that while Jesus has weathered this particular storm, these particular temptations, it's not as if he's now entirely home free or without ongoing struggle. There will be other days when hard choices will still need to be made. Still, as Scott Schauf observes in his commentary on this narrative, the temptation story has as a primary point to show what Jesus is not going to do in his ministry. What Jesus is not going to do. The Nazareth synagogue sermon, which follows it immediately, then gives us the positive. What Jesus is going to do, Jesus will bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, the oppressed go free, the year of God's favor is proclaimed. What Jesus describes in the synagogue, Shelf continues, is the nature of his kingdom. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with what he was offered there in the wilderness. 
It's a way not built on narrow self-fulfillment or on power or on spectacle. And it is the way on which we have all been called. That's the good news and the challenge for this, the first Sunday in the season of Lent. Amen.